Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast, in which we'll be discussing the review paper by Leitonen, Howie, Trump, and Hewson, which is entitled Behavior in Children with Neurofibromatosis Type 1, Cognition, Executive Function, Attention, Emotion, and Social Competence, which is due to be published in the February 2013 issue of the journal. It's going to be discussed by Annika Leitonen, Research Fellow at the Department of Genetics, University of Manchester, UK, who is the lead author, and by Dr. Annika Pitten-Kate from the Faculty of Social Sciences, University of Luxembourg. Can we please start with you, Annika, to outline the paper, background, and your findings? So the paper really got started when we realized that, and this was a few years ago, that there wasn't really an up-to-date comprehensive review on the topic. At that point, studies in different areas of cognition and behavior and so on had been done for about 20 years. And there had been several reviews, but they were usually from a sort of more specific point of view or for various reasons they would focus on particular types of studies. So they couldn't really be described as systematic. So that's what we decided to do. And uh, we started with very broad terms in terms of literature searches and came up with 5,746 papers. And eventually, 57 of these met our criteria. So we focused on school children, mainly because we were interested also in the clinical implications of the findings. And uh, we included studies that used control groups or compared the performance of children with NF1 to norms. So we didn't include, for example, case studies into our sample of studies. And we followed the conceptualization of Lezak et al., who state that behavior consists of three systems. So we have cognition, which is information handling, executive functions, so how behavior is expressed, and emotionality, which is feelings and motivation. And in addition, Lezak et al. mentions mental activity, of which we considered attention. And we also thought it was important to expand the discussion on, um, on emotionality to include concepts such as behavior problems and social competence in sort of more general terms. And we used the narrative synthesis mainly because the studies varied hugely in terms of the measures used or the sampling of the participants. So trying to do a sort of more formal meta-analysis would have been quite challenging and probably would have ended up biased in one way or another. And what we found was that intelligence, academic skills, visual spatial skills, social competence and attention seem to be impaired in children with NF1. So these findings are relatively consistent across different studies. But then the evidence was much less clear for memory, um, language, motor functioning and executive functioning. Overall, the variability of different problems in NF1 is a particular challenge, both in terms of measuring them within the context of a sort of tightly designed research study and also in terms of applying that knowledge to clinical practice. We also noted that there weren't really studies that were looking at remedial programs. So, for example, trying a particular remedial approach to help children who struggle with learning to read, for example. And it appears that at school, children with NF1 are quite a heterogeneous group. So, so far, 
it's quite difficult to sort of pinpoint a marker or a screener study that could be used to identify children who need extra support at school. So that's obviously one of the challenges for the future, as in if that can't be found, what would be the sort of practical methods for actually helping the children who do need extra support and of the children with NF1, quite a few seem to do so. I'd like to congratulate uh, Anuka on her uh, paper, uh, which is very informative. And just responding to the last thing she said about possible remediation programs, I'd like to ask her if she thinks we should target these programs on the underlying cognitive impairments that may result in these associated problems in school, or maybe just see the symptoms and use existing programs, for instance, before reading problems, to help these children with that particular problem. So it should be basically focus on the specific problems that are consistently found in NF1 or children with NF1, or should we just look at the problems that are presented irregardless uh, of the underlying causes and maybe try to focus on those? I guess, ideally, you would like to have a good idea of what the content profile is like, because then you could also anticipate problems and you could possibly intervene before it becomes a really severe problem. From what we found, it seems that defining in detail what that profile is is quite challenging because there is a huge amount of variability. Mm. And some children actually come through school without really any problems at all, while some struggle on several different areas. In terms of sort of how you can practically do it, looking at the symptoms or sort of addressing the symptoms might be easier. There haven't really been studies that would have looked at whether various remedial programs, for example, reading for children with NF1, I mean, from what I know, there shouldn't be an intrinsic reason why they shouldn't work. That's one area for further study. Right, but then probably my main question is, should we basically target or screen all children with NF1 because they may have a vulnerability of experience these, these problems or just see if problems arise irrespective of NF1 and just deal with them when they arise. So is it just a comorbidity or is it something that is specifically associated with NF1? Because I think that may have long-term implications of how to target this specific group and also maybe to inform parents or teachers. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of problems that children with NF1 have are, as such, not necessarily different from, you know, a child who doesn't have NF1 and struggles with the same kind of problem. What's unique to children with NF1 is that they usually have several areas in which they struggle. And that can be the main difficulty. I think quite often it's not that they necessarily dramatically fail in one area entirely, but they might have several weaknesses mm. that overall cause their problems. And we've actually, I think the question of some kind of screening measure is a really interesting one. And we've discussed that a lot because that would actually 
if there was something that you could do quite early on that would identify the children who will need more support, that would actually be a lot better than, like I said, waiting for the problems to kind of appear. But I think the trouble with that is, first of all, because there is a lot of variability. So having a measure that would capture several areas of problems would be quite difficult. And also another thing is that it then depends on the schooling system in the country where the child lives. Say in England, the youngest would be only just four years old when they go to school. And actually for that age group, there aren't that many sort of measures that you could use. Say, for example, for attention, you'd probably want to wait a couple of years before you would officially start diagnosing problems. Those are the challenges that you have when you're kind of trying to come up with a screening measure. Mm. I think in principle, yes, that would be fantastic. What you can do is you can alert teachers and parents of the areas in which children with an F1 can have problems. Even that is sometimes just becomes a very long list of which some children might actually never really have problems in any of those things, right. whilst others would actually struggle in several different areas. Right. I was involved in one study with NF1, but like also with uh, children with hydrocephalus, and you don't want to stigmatize children because, you know, you, we found a lot of associated problems, like yeah. also with NF1, you find associated problems, mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, as there's such a variability, you don't want to almost on the outset say, well, you know, this this increased risk, so we should take measures, and then people that experience these problems will be they feel helped about it uh, with it. But other people that don't have this problem, they feel almost stigmatized. Yes, by, I, I, like I, my, I, there's yeah. nothing wrong with my child, kind of thing. I, um, I fully agree, and I think especially for parents, say if if the child hasn't inherited from the parents, but rather is the first one in the family to have the condition. I think it can be really stressful for parents to hear that there is this huge long list of problems that can appear. Some people might find that helpful, but some people also might find that extremely stressful, especially if the child might not really have many problems at all. No, no it's a balancing act, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. Because you don't want to forewarn or make problems when there aren't, but at the same time you don't want children or parents or families to struggle no, well, yeah. there's no recognition of the fact that there may be associated issues. Yeah. And, of course, getting the support, I think, in every country um, has economic consequences. And um, <laughs> yeah. nowadays it's harder and harder to get. Um, yes, absolutely. Then you also commented on, yeah, it's more back to your, your basic article, that there is such a variety of studies there using different groups, using different methods, using different measures which makes it very hard actually to compare the different findings at times. Mm-hmm. I actually quite liked it that you used the conceptualization of Lazak because it basically gives you a model mm. kind of to incorporate the different constructs. And maybe, you know, other people make other choices, but at least there's this framework mm. in which yeah. you enable yourself to look at the different findings in a systematic way and how they can relate to each other, these different constructs. So I wondered, when you reviewed all these articles, um, what your insight was in how people go about and the difficulties they may encounter by this enormous variety. (laughs) Um, You mean conceptualizing it? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think it was actually when you started looking at what has been studied and then in which ways has it been studied, 
you are quite impressed actually because you know the number of different measures and different designs is quite large. I think one thing that I found when I was sort of thinking about the studies sort of in the context of the framework, I did realize that actually there are lots of areas that have been studied, but there are also quite a few areas that haven't been studied. I think that's something that you notice if you kind of look at the theoretical construct and how that's defined and then look at, so what do we have data for? And I guess, for example, say in terms of language use, there isn't really very much research at all, but you'd think that given the social problems of children, quite a few children with NF1, they might struggle with, say, pragmatic use of language. So that's just one example. So I guess when you've got a theoretical framework, then you can see more easily where the gaps, so to say, are. And I guess also what jumps out with some constructs is that even though sort of experimentally you use measures that are trying to measure sort of a construct in as pure a way as possible, it's still quite hard to separate out some things like, say, executive functioning or mm. visual spatial functioning with visual motor functioning, several tasks that actually have several components. So then when you're interpreting the findings, you have to kind of take into account that if someone struggles in one area, then actually the effects might be more widespread than just affecting one particular test. Right, right. Yeah, in the end of your article, you you step into that, don't you? Like uh, how how these yeah. variables relate, and if you um, go very certain variables out, then mm. actually the findings that seem to contradict each other actually then become into li- in in line with each other, or the other way around. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think those analyses are actually really interesting, but I guess you always have to remember that yeah, the results depend on what tests were used to acquire the data in the first mm-hmm. place and what's used to co-vary out what. Right, what was left. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess in that sense, kind of repeating sort of findings is quite important just to see how sort of robust the findings are. Right. Um, I think also because that will go into what what are the key issues here. Is it executive function or is it cognition or what is going on and are these other things just associated problems or um, which then maybe also develop later on because maybe initially it's not such an issue in school but of course when things become more abstract and complex all of a sudden all these factors come together and because then there are subtle problems but just a combination of all these subtle problems Mm -hmm. all of a sudden then make the child really struggle. That's like actually, beforehand you think, well, you know, it's not so bad. And all of a sudden, as, as the demands change, the child has to get access to all these different things that they might slightly struggle with. Yeah, that's really true. And I guess that's something that hasn't really been looked at very much because usually you have quite a wide age range. Right. And then age is just accounted for in the analysis, but not looked at whether the sort of, you know, problems might be different in the older age group. Right, right. you need a longitudinal design almost for it, don't yeah, you? You, have yeah, to, you, yeah, exactly. you follow the children for a long term and then you control basically for the problems they already had at younger ages at a later age or like see how they develop into like whether the younger age may not have been picked up. Yeah. Actually yeah, at a exactly. later age has developed yeah. into um, 
a problem. Yeah. No, but also all these subtle social-emotional issues, they also may actually flag up peer, when peer relationships become more important. Uh, yeah. I think when we did our research with uh, children with hydrocephalus, although our children in our sample didn't fit a specific diagnosis or disorder, but there were just subtle things that actually in social interaction became quite problematic. So you couldn't say, okay, this child has ADHD or um, can be diagnosed as on the autistic spectrum disorder, but these children scored just a bit higher on all these screening measures than children of the general population. And although it didn't fit then a certain diagnosis, it was just these subtle things that then later on in life seem to have like quite an impact on uh, peer relationships. Although yeah. you couldn't not really put your finger on what the problem was, but just like very subtle things that all of a sudden when there's a high demand in, in your daily life on these specific things, then can become problematic. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a cause and effect, but like, yeah, it's like almost like, well, there's something with this child. You can't put your finger on it and you yeah. can't put it into a diagnosis or disorder, but like still there's something with this child. And then when demands are very high for that specific skill, then all of a sudden it becomes an issue. Whilst yeah, no, later in life, maybe it disappears again. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting, actually, because I think sort of talking to people who work with children with NF1, actually that sounds like something that they might say as well. Like you say, it's not necessarily sort of huge differences or huge effects, but there's something more subtly different. Right. That, like you say, could, could well then, at times of high demand or in particular environments, become a problem. Right. But then, of course, yeah, then you get the social interaction, which then may uh, elaborate the problem, of course, because yeah, when the, yeah, yeah. Uh, and also that's in school uh, demands as well. If there's a high demand on executive function or on speed, for example, maybe the children can do the task, but they are mm. just a little bit slower. But of course, when speed is assessed as a marker of skill, then of course, all of a sudden they fail. You know, in adult life, you may give yourself more time or you you may adopt certain coping strategies and then it becomes less of a problem again. Yeah, I think in some ways school can be quite challenging in the sense that you have to perform on several different areas and you have to perform within sort of certain limits. And that can be quite difficult if you're struggling, not necessarily hugely, but slightly in several different areas. And I guess one thing that children F1 can get you sort of more time to do exams and tasks, but that does assume that school has actually recognised that they do struggle. <laughs> so getting there might take quite a bit of work. Yeah, as far as the current state of this kind of research, um, what now? What's next? There are several strands of research Going, I think there is sort of longitudinal work from very early childhood going on and more specific work, for example, into the connection between autism and NF1. Mm. I guess in terms of sort of NF1 research in general, I guess the remedial program, programs that I mentioned at the beginning, that would be one. Also, I guess ecologically valid 
paradigms or measures in the sense that it's not that clear always how well sort of lab-based tasks actually translate to, say, children's behaviour in the classroom. So looking at that connection a bit more closely, say, if a child does poorly on certain tasks of attention in the lab, how does that translate to their presentation outside the classroom or in the classroom? And I guess another thing that comes to mind is if you think of these sort of theoretical frameworks, what might be the gaps for further research in terms of maybe topics that haven't been looked at in that much detail and where you might expect problems? Yeah, I agree. There's always, you know, we have to make the translation from data that's been collected in research settings to, you know, what it means for daily life and quality of daily life uh, for these children. Yeah. And I guess kind of just thinking of the kind of practical question of how to minimize the hurdles for getting help. And I guess with NF1, one issue is that as a genetic disorder, it's quite common, but on the kind of general scale, you still wouldn't expect necessarily to have more than one child in a school. And I think sometimes it's just that, you know, it's a condition that people don't know that much about, so they don't know what kinds of problems to expect. So I guess it's sort of about that kind of, yeah, interface, as in there's quite a lot of research now about what you might expect children with NF1 to struggle with, but how to put that into practice, and also how to address the fact that it is very variable, and you might well have sort of slightly differing profiles for different groups of children with NF1. So some children might struggle more throughout with everything, but others, others are more vulnerable just in one or two areas. Right. right. Yeah, I, th I think it is all about just raising awareness of mm. the potential vulnerability rather than... Yeah from the start saying, okay, this and this and this and this will happen. It's more like the, the awareness that, that there's maybe on all kinds of different levels that people are a little bit more alert to yeah. and then, you know, hopefully pick it up early rather than when problems really yeah. arise. Yeah. Yeah. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Annika and Inika for such an informative and interesting discussion. As a physician, it's really salutary to be reminded how much more important both the social and educational aspects are of NF1 than the medical ones, which we're all trained to think about all the time. I think it's been a real service to emphasize this in this way. I hope everyone else listening to this gets as much out of it as well. It's fascinating, so many questions still to answer, and I hope that this helps lead to the right research to answer those questions. Just to remind our listeners that the article is Behavior in Children with Neurofibromatosis Type 1, Cognition, Executive Function, Attention, Emotion, and Social Competence by Leighton and et al. in the February 2013 issue.